Hello, it's Basha here, and you're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. For a couple of seconds, it sort of scared me because it felt like we were stuck in a loop. You know, when we were standing and um, the applause and the reaction from the audience just... With his uh, trademark delivery, Johnny Depp reacts to the seven-minute standing ovation that he's just received. Yeah, it just seemed to go. It just seemed to go on and on. And I, I, I was. Uh... He seems a bit bewildered. He's speaking in May at a huge press conference after his new film's world premiere at the Cannes Film Festival, and he's just been welcomed by huge crowds along the red carpet too. But not so long ago, the reception to Johnny Depp was less adoring. Johnny Depp has lost his long-running libel battle against a British tabloid. Just what happened on private jets and islands between Amber Heard and Johnny Depp was broadcast to the world. The actor claimed her bruises were inflicted by ex-husband Johnny Depp. The judge accepted this and the description of Depp as a wife-beater. Depp isn't the first actor to have travelled to Cannes to rinse their reputation. Two years ago, its red carpet hosted Mel Gibson after his anti-Semitic rants. And last year, it was James Franco, accused of sexual abuse. He was there the same year as Luc Besson, who had just been cleared of rape, and Kevin Spacey, who was facing charges of sexually assaulting four men. Spacey has since been cleared in a London court. But for this week's slow newscast from Tortoise, I'm handing over to my colleague Stephen Armstrong, who's been investigating Hollywood's great uncancelling. Over to Stephen. In this world, my friend, there are two kinds of film festivals. Cannes and the rest. The celluloid jewel of the French Riviera is the most prestigious movie gala in the world. It exudes exclusivity, and it has a long history of premiering some of the greatest films of all time. The Cannes Film Festival, for instance, has propelled the likes of Taxi Driver, Pulp Fiction, Apocalypse Now and Parasite into the mainstream and onto the Oscars stage. It's an industry-only gig, no public tickets for the great unwashed. So everyone is there to do business, to gain the praise of their peers and to get their films distributed around the world. So, while the convention centre is packed with stars, the hotels are filled with dealmakers, haggling, signing, handing over vast sums of money. It's a long way from Hollywood, but it's a key part of the world's oldest and largest film industry's machine. That's why Cannes is twinned with Beverly Hills. That's why Netflix and Amazon spent years begging to enter. And that's why studios who don't get selected by the jury will still show their movies nearby, in the hope of some reflected glory. I have been to a few other film festivals, and honestly, this one, to me, seems the most old-school Hollywood. It's so glamorous. And it's undeniably glamorous does still have something of a dress code which not all of them do and everyone's dressed up and because it's such a beautiful setting as well I think people kind of go to the extra effort. Whilst the Cannes catapult has long been part of the studio strategy for edgy movies it's now taken on a new role as a way for cancelled stars to try to claw their way back into the industry. 
hoping to wash off the dirt of the Me Too scandal with some warm water from the town's Port Vieux. This year, the festival opened with just such a moment, the world premiere of a much-anticipated film. La Comtesse Jeanne Dubarry. This is Jean Dubarry, and its lead male star? Step forward one Johnny Depp, who plays King Louis XV, speaking in impeccable French. It was an interesting choice. Depp is in the unusual position of having a British court declare him a wife-beater over claims by his ex-wife Amber Heard, but an American court later finding in Depp's favour, saying that Amber Heard had defamed Depp by claiming he abused her. During that same trial, and bear with me here, it was also ruled that Johnny Depp's lawyer had in turn defamed Amber Heard by claiming she'd lied. So it's very hard to find a way in which Johnny Depp comes out of this looking spotless. You'd think he's damaged goods. Hollywood certainly does, having dropped him from the Harry Potter spin-off series Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. But in Cannes, the fans still came. They crowded the streets outside the venue, desperate to get a glimpse of Depp, to watch as he and his co-stars linked arms and ascended the red-carpeted steps to huge excitement. So we were watching everything on a screen that was projecting what was going on in this other cinema to us. You know, Depp got this huge reception. Claire Gregory is the entertainment editor for Sky News. You know, the camera was on Depp a lot of the time and there was vast amounts of applause before the film even started. So there was never a sense of, in, in that moment, there was never a sense of him not being welcome. As the lights came up at the end, the audience rose to their feet and applauded. For seven minutes. Which sounds like absolutely loads, but actually in Cannes terms isn't actually that much. Even within the same festival, you saw Killers of the Flower Moon, for example, getting nine minutes, and the longest ever was 22 minutes. Still, seven minutes of adulation feels a lot for a man who an English High Court judge ruled had assaulted his wife on a dozen occasions, putting her in fear for her life at least three times. At the press conference that followed the screening, there was a little less clapping and a little more probing. Johnny Depp was asked if he felt boycotted by Hollywood. Do I feel boycotted now? No, not at all. Um, but I don't feel boycotted by Hollywood because I don't think about it. I don't think about Hollywood. <laughs> And he sort of implied that he thinks the culture at the moment is not one that he wants to be part of. He said, it's a funny time where everybody would love to be themselves, but they can't. Because they must fall in line with the person in front of them. You want to live that kind of life? I wish you the best. I'll be on the other side somewhere, you know. He feels he's a victim of a, of a time. And of course, he won his court case in the US against Amber Heard, his ex-wife. And he feels that he's vindicated now. He feels he's moved on. He's keen to rewrite the script. He wants us to believe he's living his best life and he's ready to make some movies again. Is it that easy? Can movie stars decide for themselves if and when they've been vindicated and return to Hollywood's open arms? 
certainly the likes of Louis C.K., Shia LaBeouf and Ezra Miller are all working after a variety of accusations, ranging from masturbating in front of women to sexual assault and grooming. Yet, just six years ago, we witnessed the groundbreaking Me Too movement tear into the rape and sexual assault culture that dominated Hollywood. This was a culture that was hiding in such plain sight that the industry even had its own jargon for sexual assault. There is a term for the rape of women, casting couch, that people always kind of just go, oh yeah, what's the casting couch? Like, this is a thing. What did you think about like what the casting couch is? We don't really. But when you actually think about it, you're like, this is not a good thing we should be striving for, right? Was Me Too really so long ago that we've forgotten what it was all about? The industry should be ashamed of the fact that there is a term for how women were abused for decades. But there is no shame attached to it. So little shame, it seems, that in 2019, the Cannes Film Festival started inviting men whose behaviour had been so reprehensible that even Hollywood, the capital of the casting couch, wanted nothing more to do with them. And after showing up at Cannes, their films did a little better. Their reputations repaired just a little bit more. I've been covering this industry for years, and Cannes has always welcomed Hollywood outcasts. Roman Polanski, for instance, is a regular. He's even won the festival's biggest prize, the Palme d'Or. Although he can't go back to the US because there's outstanding arrest warrants for sex with a minor and rape. But I've not seen anything like this ritual of cleansing before. If it was a movie, we'd call it the Great Uncancelling. It's just that right now, I don't know how this movie ends. 2017 felt like a year of reckoning in the entertainment industry. A year earlier, the Fox News founder, Roger E. Ailes, and its star presenter, Bill O'Reilly, had both lost their jobs over accusations of sexual harassment. Then came Taylor Swift. She'd accused the radio DJ David Mueller of reaching under her skirt and placing his hand on her bottom at a meet-and-greet organised by his radio station way back in 2013. The DJ lost his job and sued Taylor Swift for defamation. The star countersued for battery and sexual assault. And in August 2017, a jury found in Taylor Swift's favour. I guess I just think about all the people that weren't believed and the people who haven't been believed or the people who are afraid to speak up because they think they won't be believed. It's naive to think Taylor Swift's lawsuit caused what happened next, but she definitely captured the feeling bubbling up around the entertainment industry. Melissa Silverstein, the founder of Women in Hollywood, remembers where she was when the story began to break. I remember that I got a phone call during the Toronto Film Festival from, I think it was Jodie Cantor, saying that they were working on something. Jodie Cantor is a New York Times journalist. And what she hinted that day on the phone was that she and her colleague, Megan Toomey, were working on an article about Harvey Weinstein. It was like about a month later when the story happened and, you know, everyone was like texting and being like, you got to look at this story. And I was just like, the immediate reaction was, holy shit. Finally, after so many stories, they got it. 
The article Jodie and Meghan published on October the 5th, 2017, carried on-the-record quotes from the actress Ashley Judd. She talked about Harvey Weinstein inviting her to a meeting in his hotel room, where he appeared in a bathrobe and asked her to give him a massage or watch him shower. Other women, some anonymous, recounted similar tales, but there's no doubt it was Ashley Judd as a working actor with her career on the line whose courage to speak out started the fire. And it was just one of those things where you're, you're, you're just like, you remember where you were. It's like a 9-11 thing. It's just, it's you're never gonna ever get that moment out of your head when Hollywood changed forever. Do you remember particular people coming forth and particular voices that you were surprised to hear? We saw high profile people immediately talk about Harvey and their experiences. And then you would see like, a podcast come out and you see another newspaper story and then remember it was four three or four days later when Ronan Farrow's first story hit so it was like you know gut punch again and you're just like oh man this is incredible and I think just all bets were off then. Ronan Farrow's article in the New Yorker magazine appeared on the 10th of October. He spoke to actors such as Asia Argento Mira Sorvino and Rosanna Arquette about Harvey Weinstein's pattern of assault. Then, on October the 15th, Alyssa Milano tweeted, if you've been sexually harassed or assaulted, write me too as a reply to this tweet. That tweet kickstarted a movement. Within 24 hours, Alyssa Milano received thousands of replies, many from Hollywood names like Evan Rachel Wood and Viola Davis, but many more from nurses, teachers, engineers, mothers, sisters and wives. And I think it scared a lot of men really quickly, particularly of a certain generation. This was just the way they did business, the way they talked to women, the way they treated women. It was just normalized. And this was a moment where people said it was never normal even though it was normalized, and it's unacceptable. By January 2018, Hollywood names, including Shonda Rhimes, Natalie Portman and Reese Witherspoon, had launched Time's Up, aimed at raising money for legal action and lobbying for laws to protect women in the workplace. In full-page adverts in the New York Times and the Spanish-language paper La Opinion, Time's Up called for actors to make a statement in support of Hollywood's abused women. It asked them to wear black on the red carpet at the Golden Globe Awards on January the 7th. It also asked them to sport badges with the group's black and white logo. I think the men, you know, were like, yeah, I'm getting on board this. I don't think they had much of a choice. Their publicists were like, you better wear the time's up. They probably, again, didn't realise how shitty they were. One of the actors on the red carpet that day was James Franco, apparently one of the good guys. The James Franco story ultimately starts in the late 90s with a burgeoning group of charming comedian actors and writers with a show called Freaks and Geeks, a single season masterpiece helmed by Judd Apatow and a team of these these young creatives, these freewheeling spirits that included James Franco and his soon-to-be best bud, Seth Rogen. This is Matt Mahler. I'm the managing editor of MovieWeb. We try to look at everything going on in Hollywood 
without bias, but also without fear. Franco sort of was the cute boy. (laughs) If it's a boy band, he was the sexy one in the group. He developed that look uh, with films like Spider-Man playing uh, Tobey Maguire's best friend and several other films, but he always considered himself a true actor. He was very serious. So along with the goofy comedies with his friend Seth Rogen, James Franco took on more serious films, like the 2010 Danny Boyle film 127 Hours, and he earned an Oscar nomination for his performance in that, so that in 2011, at the age of 32, he became the first actor to both host the Oscars and be nominated for an Oscar. He was, by anyone's standards, a big deal. Fast forward to 2018, and that Time's Up call for actors to wear black at the Golden Globes. Franco shows up, he's wearing a Time's Up pin. He is an ally. He is a vast supporter of the movement. I wanted to ask why you chose to stand in solidarity tonight. And what it's a point he emphasizes to the press that evening after picking up the Best Actor Award on. for the Disaster Artist. Anytime any group is treated differently or, you know, uh, given, you know, less rights or, you know, less equality um, than any other, uh, it's everyone's responsibility to, to stand up and make change. But then... So that's why I'm wearing the pen. Twitter goes crazy. James Franco just won. The Breakfast Club actor Ali Sheedy tweets. Please never ask me why I left the film TV business. Then... Sarah Ty the Kaplan. Hey James Franco, nice Time's Up pin at the Golden Globes. Remember a few weeks ago when you told me the full nudity you had me do in two of your movies for $100 a day wasn't exploitative because I signed a contract to do it? Time's up on that. And Violet Paley. Cute Time's Up pin, James Franco. Remember the time you pushed my head down in a car towards your exposed penis and that other time you told my friend to come to your hotel when she was 17? After you had already been caught doing that to a different 17-year-old? Paley's tweet referenced 2014 allegations when news site Gorka published messages between Franco and a 17-year-old Scottish girl he was seemingly trying to lure to a hotel room. Within the week, five women, including Sarah Tyler Kaplan and Violet Paley, went on the record in the LA Times with complaints focused largely on Franco's short-lived acting school, Studio 4, and a $750 masterclass called Sex Scenes. Two women also said Franco subjected them to uncomfortable and unprofessional conditions while he was a teacher at Playhouse West in Los Angeles. Kate Ryan, who worked with Franco at both schools, said the actor would always make everybody think there were possible roles on the table if we were to perform sexual acts or take off our shirts. It was a complete 180 from what Franco had publicly announced himself to be, that is, an ally, a charming, good-looking, creative, artistic ally to women. That all tended to crumble, and with it, his career. At that moment, um, I just thought, I'm going to be quiet. James Franco stayed quiet. I'm going to be, I'm going to pause. Did not seem like the right time to say anything. As he later told the podcast host, Jess Cagle, in 2021. There were people that were upset with me and I needed to listen. But at the time, the fallout was swift. He was digitally removed from Vanity Fair's annual Hollywood issue. 
He lost a role in Spider-Man No Way Home, and he was disowned by friends and colleagues. His close friend, Seth Rogen, would no longer smoke a doobie with him. In fact, Rogan went so far as to denounce Franco and refuse to work with him. Someone that close to Franco, totally shutting him out, was a massive blow to Franco. It ultimately prophesied the shutting out of Franco entirely from Hollywood. Of course, there were several productions in the pipeline that came out afterwards. But Franco didn't act for roughly four years. In February 2021, James Franco settled a class action lawsuit for $2.2 million. It ended the lawsuit without a trial. Look, I'll admit, I did sleep with students. I didn't sleep with anybody in that particular class. And in that conversation with Jess Cagle's podcast, he admitted he'd had sex with a student. Over the course of my teaching, I did sleep with students. And that was wrong. And he said he'd been in treatment for sexual addiction since 2016. His career seemed over. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry to the untimely death of the Segway boss, history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns can teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts. People have short memories, you know, the public has short memories. And so that is a really, really interesting weapon and, and reliable weapon in the arsenal. Maureen Ryan calls that weapon the forgetting machine. Maureen is a journalist and the author of Burn It Down, Power, Complicity and a Call for Change in Hollywood. What is the forgetting machine element? The first thing I'm going to say in reaction to that is, is a very human thing. I think it's very hard unless you've talked to the people themselves to, to hear the pain in their voices. It can be hard to put yourself in the shoes of the reporter or the, 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 the advocate who has heard these stories firsthand because it's really horrifying. So what happens is that the piece does come out. And then if you work at a talent agency a year later, you didn't do that reporting. You've come up in an industry in which all manner of completely abusive and nightmarish behaviors were allowed and encouraged as creativity. And so that's why you say in a meeting, well, what he did, was it really that bad? Because you allowed time to soften it down. And you know, that's a human thing too. The passage of time allows people to reframe things. And James Franco made some canny decisions. He confessed and apologised, sort of. I did see his appearance on the Jess Cagle podcast, where he was pretty upfront and pretty candid about stuff like admitting to being a sex addict. Neville Naidu is a South African journalist who wrote a profile on Franco for MovieWeb. 
Do you think that's important for actors to step forward and acknowledge what they've done? Yeah, of course. I mean, look, just purely from a commercial point of view, showing some form of contrition would obviously be advisable. The flip side of the argument would be, I'd say, how do we tell how genuine and sincere it is? I mean, if you've made a career out of acting and and you're known for, for your main skill as being a great actor, it's never cut and dry that we can just accept what they say. And James Franco had unwitting allies in the vilest of men who had gone before. In interviews, for instance, his accusers were keen to distinguish him from the very worst of the Me Too abusers. Specifically, they said he was no Weinstein. Harvey was a monster. So people kind of judge themselves in relation to Harvey. Well, I'm not as bad as Harvey, or he's not as bad as Harvey. I didn't sexually assault people. It's just like, that shouldn't be the bar that you are striving for. Not as bad as Harvey. In many of the interviews for this podcast, what you might call the Weinstein test kept coming up. Did the accused man perform criminal acts using his power and influence to abuse and rape women? Did he wreck their careers if they refused his advances? Well... Maybe he's not so bad after all. And the Weinstein test may help us understand what comes next. Because Maureen thinks Hollywood weaponizes the natural human instinct to give people the benefit of the doubt. These are storytellers. If your whole job is spinning a story, Stephen, I will tell you for a fact, I've been taken in by people because they're good at this. They're good at making what they did seem like an accident, an oversight, a mistake, something they regret. The storytelling power of Hollywood is so powerful. Maureen's experience is that storytellers respond to stories. And when it comes to studios making decisions, the one group of people who aren't in the room telling their stories are the women at the receiving end of a star's abuse. Is there a trigger that allows a studio to say, you know, we can we can employ this person again. I'm going to be absolutely brutally honest about what lets people back in. I do think that there is a PR calculation. I do think conversations are had about the level of reaction or blowback that they might get. But I think that the unspoken thing that drives a lot of this, especially that drives people to be brought back into the fold of the entertainment industry in Europe, people don't think that that individual should have faced any consequences and think that they were hounded unfairly. And again, the financiers, the producers, the directors who are hiring these people and putting them on the potential cast list, they're not going to say that in interviews because they're too smart. But I do know at very high levels in these entertainment industries, not everywhere, but you know, at enough places, the culture often is that, oh, that poor person was hounded unfairly. In 2022, James Franco was cast in his first film role since the acting school scandal broke. He was playing a corrupt cop in John Emile's thriller Mace, and it took him to that famous red carpet at Cannes. It seemed as if the entire environment at Cannes was uh, fundamentally different than the sort of ostracized state of exile that a lot of cancelled actors found themselves in in Hollywood. Since then, Franco's picked up roles in Billy August's Me, You, 
and is set to play Fidel Castro in Alina of Cuba. That's another somewhat small movie that would not have received as much of the press as it got if Franco wasn't involved. We also see this in Shia LaBeouf with Padre Pio, a small political film in Italy. There seems to be a playbook here, a sort of trend of actors who are not quite expats, but canceled, obviously, in American culture, who are finding smaller films internationally. And their very presence is is boosting these movies and making them noteworthy. Shia LaBeouf, who made his name in the Transformers movies and playing Indiana Jones' son in The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, has been accused of physical and emotional abuse by three women. These include his ex-girlfriends, Sia Furler, known simply as Sia, and Talia Barnett, who performs as FKA Twigs. Talia Barnett has brought legal action against him, and the case is awaiting trial. Although Shia LaBeouf is contesting every allegation, he appeared on actor John Bernthal's podcast Real Ones to talk about the accusations. He said, I hurt that woman, and in the process of doing that I hurt many other people, and many other people before that woman. I was a pleasure-seeking, selfish, self-centred, dishonest, inconsiderate, fearful human being. But he seems to have overcome the resulting career setback with the can playbook. He's set to star in uh, Francis Ford Coppola's giant megalopolis film and David Mamet's JFK thriller, Assassination. So perhaps we see the playbook coming to fruition for LeBouf, but the verdict's still out on Franco. Shia LeBouf went to Cannes in 2019. James Franco was there in 2022. This year, it was all about Johnny Depp. There is marketability to Johnny Depp. They look at this little movie about Castro's daughter. James Franco is involved. There's marketability. People are talking about a Cuban film, a Spanish language film they would not have covered otherwise. Something's going on here, and it seems almost strategic. I'm Marianne Wong, and I'm a practicing litigator in New York, and I've represented quite a few women who've been sexually assaulted or abused, often by powerful men. I I represented for a while a woman who was assaulted by Donald Trump. I've represented two women who were harassed by Governor Cuomo. I have a number of other cases against other other individuals and institutions, unfortunately. <laughs> when you see someone like Johnny Depp being feted at Cannes, when you see people making these comebacks, how do you feel? It makes me very sad. It makes, it makes me depressed in the sense that it, it feels like no one really cares about these women. But... I also understand why it's happening. Like, he probably genuinely believes he never did anything wrong, and so there's no reason for him not to be feted. For me, it's a little bit less about the perpetrator because they're always going to be bad people. For me, it really is about how the people around him react and how do the, you know, quote-unquote bystanders, how are we reacting and how are we enabling? And so for me, it's less that Depp is standing up there and much more like all of those people who just, you know, either don't care or they want to, they want to actively show support for him. That's the, the part to me that's, that's sad. 
Uh, why do you think that happens with those sorts of figures like the Cuomo's, like the Depp's? Is it simply that they have that power and that charisma or is it that they make money and bring results? Why do people allow that to happen? I think it's probably both those things. The other piece of it that's interesting to me is is the sort of, is that if you're like a very powerful bully, you can actually take advantage of people's people's sense of not wanting to make waves, right? So you come into the the room and you say something crazy. Most people are not going to like start screaming at you and have a fight or storm out. Most people are going to be like, hmm, that's very odd. Let me have another sip of my drink and just try to pretend it's not happening. And so the bullies get away with it. The great uncancelling is a bleak concept. It suggests that short of serving time in jail, there's very little a movie star can do that won't get forgotten or forgiven. Can I curse? This is Melissa Silverstein again from Women in Hollywood. Because Johnny Depp gives zero fucks, right? Sued the pants off his wife. She was wrecked, wrecked so hard that she had to move to another continent to live. And nobody stood up for her. And they just got into the Johnny land and they just trolled the shit out of this woman. Can again. The notice meme machine. It's where Bridget Bardot launched her career by turning up in a bikini in 1953. It's also where Sasha Baron Cohen debuted Borat's Mankini in 2006. And it's where the cast of The Expendables turned up to their screening in three World War II tanks. Why? Because people go to Cannes to be seen. And because this is the world's most respected film festival, being seen there means so much more than turning up at Sundance or Toronto or anywhere else. In Cannes, the elite of the French film industry invite you. It's the kind of publicity that changes careers. And saves them. Of course, it's risky. So they got a lot of press, but, you know, it's a lot of negative press. And that old adage of all press is good press, is it really now in a post-Me Too world? I don't think so. Matt Marler isn't so sure. In Hollywood, he argues, press is press, is eyeballs, is dollars. There's a sort of consequential effect here. Hollywood takes notice and they say, Jean Dubarry, no one heard of that. And now it's the number one trending thing on Google. Will Depp succeed? It's hard to say. He appeared on the Cannes Corset in May, around the time he was signing Al Pacino to star in his biopic of artist Armedo Mogdigliani, Depp's second film as a director. So the signs were good. But as I record this podcast, his tour with his band Hollywood Vampires has just been cancelled amid reports of Depp collapsing in his hotel room. Now, we, we know Depp's life has involved battles with addiction. We can see the peril his health is in. We also know James Franco and Sheila Booth had addiction issues. They've spoken about it. They've spoken about their suffering at length on podcasts. We can read updates online almost every single day. But then we also know that being abused by powerful men can lead to a lifetime of mental health problems. So no one wishes Depp ill. It's just the women who spoke out in 2017... How are they doing now? In May, Evan Rachel Wood lost custody of her son after Marilyn Manson made threats against his life. 
Ashley Judd, is fighting court battles to stop the press showing images of her mother's suicide. And earlier this month, Rosanna Arquette was hospitalised after smashing her car into an LA shopping centre. She was the only person hurt. Google all these stories and you'll see that Johnny Depp cancelling his rock and roll tour has pages and pages of coverage, while Evan, Ashley and Rosanna, not so much. And Amber Heard, she's moved to Spain with her two-year-old daughter. So many people are concerned about Johnny. Close friends are worried. The fans are heartbroken. The Johnny Depp story, that's the big one. That's the one we care about. It's easy to feel a little hopeless as Hollywood tries this reset. All that courage, all that campaigning, and the abusers creep back in. So what was it all for? Well, Me Too as a movement may have begun in Hollywood, but the ripples from the vast boulder Ashley Judd hurled into Weinstein's stinking pool are still spreading around the world. Without those ripples, would R. Kelly's accusers have found the courage to speak out in 2019? Would the claims of sexual misconduct and toxic culture at other workplaces, including the Confederation of British Industry, McDonald's and even Parliament, have produced such dramatic change? There have been Me Too moments all around the world, from Bollywood to the Spanish judiciary, the Tunisian Parliament and even the Nobel Prize for Literature. And while we were working on this podcast, an article appeared in The Times. It was written by the writer and TV producer Daisy Goodwin, and it stood out. The facts of the story were surprising, for sure. Daisy Goodwin claimed she'd been groped by a special advisor during a meeting at Number 10 Downing Street. But I was also struck by the way the story emerged. How and when Daisy Goodwin had chosen to tell it. It begins ten years ago, in 2013, when a special advisor called Daniel Korski shows Daisy into the Thatcher drawing room at Downing Street. It's a hot day, I was wearing sunglasses. He was quite flirtatious with me. He said, oh, in those glasses you look like Monica Bellucci. A Bond film had just come out with her and Daniel Craig and it was all a bit of a drama because he was old. she was older than him and I was clearly older than Daniel Korski. And I was like, mm, OK. Then we sit down at the round table and he's sitting next to me and he puts his feet on my chair, which again is a bit weird, I thought, and kind of thrusts his pelvis forward. It was, I mean, you know, it was nothing, but it was also weird. They discussed the idea for a television show for a while and then... As we stand up to leave, he um, puts his hand on my breast and I was just so astonished by this. I just said... Oh my goodness, have you just put your hand on my breast? And he just looked really startled and, you know, took his hand away. And it was very odd. I I sort of went home and told her about it, everybody I knew about it. But she didn't take it further until four years later and the emergence of Me Too. At that point, I realised that actually I had been negligent. So she wrote an article, but she didn't name him. It was only when she discovered that Daniel Korski was standing as the Conservative candidate in the London mayoral election that she changed her mind. And, because six years after the emergence of Me Too, she felt the climate had changed. 
I think the world has changed. And the woman who encouraged me to write the piece for the time just said, you know, people will believe you now. And I was like, well, do you really think so? She said, yes. And I think they did. As a result of Daisy Goodwin's article, Daniel Kulski stood down as candidate for mayor. In a statement, he said that while he still categorically denied the claim, he decided with a heavy heart to step down from the race as the news agenda is becoming a distraction from the race and the Conservative Party. Daisy Goodwin takes that to mean that this kind of change is hard to come by. And in Hollywood, the playbook is still... Well, it's still in play. There is a new generation coming up who saw the results of the casting couch and decided it was no place for them. Whether they're young women or young men. Kim Masters is editor-at-large for The Hollywood Reporter, and she's been covering these stories for years. I find that there's still an amazing reluctance. I think there's a feeling among some of these guys to say, look, can we go back to the status quo ante? Can we just go back to pre-Harvey? She sees parts of the industry slipping back, but she's noticed something else. In many, many of the stories I've done, the first parties to come to me with complaints are guys. Younger men in particular, they're not here for it. And I'm, I'm increasingly saying it with younger women too. They are just not willing to accept it. James Franco may be working his way back into favour in Hollywood, but has something fundamental changed, especially for younger women? I do hope this generation is not going to take any shit in a different way. I think that my generation maybe is more likely to be smirking but not necessarily say anything, whereas maybe the 20-year-olds are just going to, like, upend the buffet table and, and shout more. But the abuse of power by those who have it is a story we've been telling for years. We've been here before, you know, there, there was, at least in the United States, there's Anita Hill. There were many other times in the 60s, there were many times where women came forward to, to try to speak about this. The thing is, Me Too was, and still is, a bigger movement than previous campaigns, not least because of the global momentum of social media. However, once someone's tasted power, wealth and fame, they always want more. If they're pushed out, they always want back in. The rules of the uncancelling playbook may change. But unless we call out these abusers each time we see them, well then, to paraphrase George Orwell, we will look from man to pig, and from pig to man, and it will be impossible to say which is which. And in that case, nothing will ever change. Thank you for listening. To access more of our journalism and invites to exclusive events, join Tortoise as a member. Just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash slowdown. This episode was reported by me, Stephen Armstrong. The producer was Katie Gunning. Sound design was by Matt Russell and the editor was Jasper Corbett. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job and we have to find out who did they kill, if it's possible. 
How are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.